listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight for our first show of 2024, curiosity is the compass that leads us to our passions. Where curiosity killed the cat, we get different advice on the benefits and potential perils of asking questions or sticking one's nose in other people's business. But if practiced properly, if deployed tactfully, maybe curiosity is actually a real superpower. We talk to the author of a book called Seek, who believes it to be so. It's only the second day of the new year, but chances are some of you are already struggling with your 2024 resolutions. There are common myths around how to properly set and meet goals that can get in the way of success and make it tougher for us to keep our resolutions. We get some advice on how to avoid them this year. You know I love a good mystery and particularly a good mystery solved. This one uh, with several lines of encoded message found on two pieces of paper hidden in the pocket of a 140-year-old dress. And it stumped coding enthusiasts for years until a University of Manitoba professor managed to crack it. He joins me to explain how he did it and what exactly the coded message said. But first, we head to Japan where search and rescue efforts continue today after a major earthquake shook parts of the country's west coast on New Year's Day. And where there was more tragedy today after a passenger airline collided with a small Coast Guard plane heading to the quake zone on the runway of Tokyo's busy Haneda Airport, killing five people on the Coast Guard plane. And it could have been far worse. First, let's begin in Japan, where the death toll from a series of powerful earthquakes in the western part of the country has now climbed to at least 48 people. There are aftershocks, of course, that have shook that area. Uh, it's a hard area to get to, parts of it at least. A 7.6 magnitude quake that rocked Japan on Monday, Sunday here at home. Uh, more than a dozen people, again, more than a dozen people were seriously injured as well. Thousands of buildings, vehicles, and boats have been damaged. Daniel Smith, a Tokyo resident and U.S. national, was visiting uh, Toyama when the quake hit. First, uh, the, the, it just started very slowly, and 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 everybody kind of left it off. You know, they thought, ah, oh, this is this is uh, kind of humorous, you know, on New Year's Day, and then it's then it's just a violent shake. Yeah, I mean, and it was a violent shake, one of the biggest quakes to hit Japan, or at least the biggest, uh, one of the biggest to hit since that massive one uh, back in 2011, the Fukushima quake. Now, compounding the tragedy today, I don't know if you saw these images, uh, but there was a collision at Haneda Airport, which is Tokyo's busiest, between a uh, airliner, a passenger airliner, and a Coast Guard uh, plane that collided on the on the runway. Um, Five of the six people on board that plane operated by the Japanese Coast Guard were killed. The pilot survived, uh, but a Japan Airlines Airbus A350 uh, caught fire with 379 people on board. It burst into flames, but all passengers and crew were able to escape. TV footage was just spectacular. This orange fireball erupting as the Japan Airlines plane collided with that smaller Coast Guard plane while landing. Um, now, again, everyone managed to escape within 20 minutes. There were no serious injuries aboard the passenger jet, which in of itself is a miracle. Here's ABC News aviation analyst Steve Gagnard explaining how both the training of the crew and the speed of the evacuation, as well as the, the sort of the structure of the plane itself, uh, may have helped prevent further catastrophe. Every modern airliner is certified to be able to evacuate the whole cabin within 90 seconds because that is enough time to get everybody off before any major fires break out. 
airplanes continue to get safer with every iteration. In this case, you had better ability to escape the airplane once there was a mishap on the ground. You had a stronger airplane in that carbon fiber hull, which protected the passengers in ways that another airplane might not. One passenger told Japan's NHK TV that cabin attendants were calm and told everyone to leave their luggage behind. A reminder to follow instructions when you get on a plane. Watch that safety video. Joining me now from Tokyo is Jeff Hall. He's a special lecturer at Kanda University of International Studies in Tokyo. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Uh, I suppose we should start with this incident at Haneda because the images were absolutely horrifying. Uh, any any clearer picture today? I know it's Wednesday there. Any clearer picture today of what happened? Uh, they're still in the process of investigating why it happened. Uh, it seems that uh, the Coast Guard plane that was on its way to a disaster relief mission related to the earthquake uh, got in the runway just as the uh, JAL plane was landing. Uh, but they're not really sure who's at fault yet, and there'll probably be a formal investigation to really get the details out. Right. The reaction to it, though, I mean, it, it, just the images of the, of the passenger plane, because it really, I mean, the whole thing burnt up. You get the impression, and this must be uh, what people are saying today where you are, it, that it could have been far, far worse here. Yes, it was almost unbelievable when they said on the news that everyone had made it out of the plane because uh, it had been live on television for some minutes, just showing the plane completely engulfed in flames. And it seemed almost unbelievable that anybody uh, could get out of that unscathed. But uh, as uh, your expert just said, they were able to calmly do this. And that's why they have these safety measures uh, set up. Yeah, but my experience flying in Japan is that they take the safety aspect of this very seriously. I know there have been there were some major disasters going way back to the late 90s and so on, and that aviation safety and certainly the way that passengers are instructed to behave is is taken very seriously on on JAL on on Japan Airlines. Uh, yeah, certainly uh, with JAL and ANA, the two major national carriers, they really emphasize the professionalism of their uh, cabin attendants. And it's a very strict training regimen and it's very hard to become a cabin attendant in Japan. Uh, so they take great pride in their work and they're very serious about their safety demonstrations. They're not slacking off. They're, they're very much involved in showing people what to do and showing the videos. And they always have a very interesting videos to capture the attention of uh, passengers so they don't doze off during the safety uh, demonstration. Right. I imagine there's been a lot of reaction as well just from passengers who are on the plane. I, I know that NHK, which is the big uh, TV network in Japan, was airing interviews with passengers who'd survived, and it was harrowing. Yeah, and indeed. And uh, probably the most harrowing uh, example is several videos that have been posted on social media from inside the airplane as it's filling up with smoke. And you can see the cabin attendants are very calmly uh, instructing people to hurry up and get off. And so uh, it's very rare that you actually get footage from inside of a plane during an accident like this. And this is something that a lot of people are paying attention to and, and praising uh, the airline. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll find out exactly what went wrong uh, as that investigation continues. To the quake now, I mean, this was a big earthquake. Uh, I, I gather that parts of where it happened are not easy to get to. And that's been, we don't have a full picture of exactly just how devastating it has been other than the images we've been seeing of fires and so on. It looks like it was a, it looks like it was a bad one. Yes, it was a very big earthquake by Japanese standards. 
Uh, like you said earlier, since uh, 2011, there hasn't really been an earthquake quite as damaging as this. There have been several in places like Kumamoto, but here we have uh, an earthquake that is hitting this Noto Peninsula, which is uh, a very scenic tourist area of Japan that many people go to to see the beautiful coast, uh, but it's also an area that's not heavily populated to the extent of having very, very good uh, roads and many different roads. So as soon as the earthquake hit, uh, many of these roads were blocked off by landslides or just completely cracked to pieces by the liquefaction of the soil. Uh, so right now it's been very difficult to get uh, relief supplies to them or get rescue workers to them because the roads are just simply uh, untenable at this moment. Right. I've been to Kanazawa, so I've been on, it was watching images of, of that, uh, of the subway stations there, or at least people taking images inside the subway of things shaking and so on. It looked like a violent one. There was a tsunami warning as well, and I, I guess, and, and a major tsunami warning, which I guess had a lot of people thinking back to what happened 13 years ago, although it was nowhere near that magnitude. Sure. And when the warnings came on the TV, uh, it was the highest level of tsunami warning, which hasn't been issued since 2011. So uh, this was really what people were fearing was, you know, this huge wave that wipes out entire towns as it did in back in those days. And we all remember the television footage and all these horrifying videos of the waves engulfing cars and buildings. Uh, there was a tsunami this time, but uh, it did not reach that level. It mainly did damage to some buildings that were immediately next to the coast, but it didn't go travel inland like in 2011. So it also looks like most of the people in those areas hit by the tsunami had probably already evacuated. Uh, people really take the evacuations very seriously because of 2011 and how it showed just how scary this can be. Um, when people see that there's a warning, uh, they tend to get out of their houses almost immediately now. Before, it wasn't so much the case. I think there was a lot of complacency because it just hadn't happened in so many years and uh, people uh, thought it was just something that maybe happened somewhere else in the world. But it's very much on the minds of Japanese people whenever they see those warnings. Jeff Hall is with us from Tokyo this half hour. We're talking about uh, the major earthquake that hit the country on Monday in Japan, Sunday back here at home. And there was a very scary incident at Tokyo's very busy Haneda Airport today involving a Coast Guard plane uh, that was taking off actually to deliver some relief to uh, to the quake hit area when it collided with a, a Japan Airlines uh, airliner that was carrying an Airbus that was carrying about 370 people as it was making its landing at Haneda. Uh, unfortunately, five people on the Coast Guard plane were killed, but all the passengers and crew on that uh, passenger airliner survived, despite the fact the plane burnt up, essentially. So an investigation to what happened there. Uh, Jeff, what are some of the challenges now in terms of the quake uh, relief? Because I've been seeing stuff come out today. Obviously, it's Wednesday, so 48 hours later. Uh, they're still trying to reach some of those harder-hit areas. But is there a sense that things could that this death toll could increase significantly? Uh, I believe that... A lot of areas haven't really been searched yet. Uh, the self-defense forces, which are Japan's main disaster relief force in any natural disaster, are on their way. Uh, but the roads are very much destroyed in many areas. And in some areas, like a town called Suzu, uh, it's estimated that maybe 90% of the buildings there have collapsed in some way. So it'll take a long time to really know uh, the death toll. I think it's about 62 the last time I checked, but uh, yesterday it was 20-something. So uh, they're finding... Uh, more people. They don't really know how many people were even there because it was the New Year's holiday and 
so many people gather with their families that maybe there were people uh, visiting their family or maybe people had left for somewhere else to visit family. So it's not even really clear who is missing and who was at home and not at home when this happened. Right. And aftershocks, of course, always an issue in these quake zones. Yes, they've been continuing uh since the the quake happened, I think I got an alert on my phone about an hour ago about an aftershock occurring, uh, another quite strong aftershock. Actually, it would qualify as a pretty big earthquake in its own right. So uh, the people there, it must be a very scary experience with the shaking happening every 30 minutes to an hour all night and all day since the earthquake hit. What's that like to be there? Because I think we understand, uh, it, perhaps intellectually, you understand what it's like to live in a quake zone where you where you experience a lot of quakes. And certainly, Japan's no stranger to major earthquakes over the years. But still, it must it must be something that, especially after twenty eleven, it must it must awaken a lot of fears and a lot of people when the shaking begins. Uh, definitely. I, I mean, I was here in twenty eleven. I wasn't near the epicenter, but I was in an area near Tokyo. Uh, that lost its uh, train connection because of the earthquake. And uh, I had to spend a night in an evacuation center. So uh, it's very much not as a big deal as what people in the epicenter experience. But you sit there uh, in the cold. Uh, usually there's not electricity. Uh, there might be some emergency food to distribute. Uh, but these people now, they've been there for... Uh, days uh, now, uh, probably in elementary school gymnasiums or uh, shopping mall areas or other other large facilities that can hold a lot of people. And uh, they might have some very basic food, but there might not be running water. There might not be uh, a lot of amenities that people rely on. And most of them will have fled their homes very quickly without bringing much of anything. Uh, some people might have emergency bags that they brought. But in most cases, if you see an alert that says a tsunami is coming and you remember what happened in 2011, uh, you just get out of there as soon as you can and don't think about uh, packing bags. I remember there was a lot of anger, obviously, after 2011. How, how much has been done in the past, more, more than a decade now, how much has been done to try to better prepare, at least, uh, for these sorts of things? Because obviously, it's an active quake zone. Uh, how, much, how, more, how much better prepared is Japan now than it was 11 years ago for these sorts of things? Well, Japan is a country where, in, in the back of everyone's mind, you know that any, no matter where you are in the country, there could be an earthquake, a big earthquake. And so people grow up learning about this. They, they train for it in schools. And after 2011, I think people really got a sense of the reality of what could actually happen. And so I think a lot more people take the disaster drills more seriously, maintain their own emergency bags and supplies that uh, like canned food and blankets and other things in a backpack just for that, that they keep in their closet. Uh, and uh, people are more keenly aware that, you know, flashing red lights on the coast on a TV screen uh, means mortal danger could be coming. And so I think people very much uh, have changed their mindset since 2011. And uh, this is another reminder, to, uh, you know, on New Year's Day, uh, everybody is at home with their family and they see it on TV, reminded of just how serious these disasters are. Well, Jeff, I appreciate your time. Stay safe. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 
you must know if you listen to this show enough that I love puzzles, right? So I still do Wordle. I know we don't talk about it anymore, but I still do it just about every morning if I, if unless I forget. Um, and then I do all the other ones that you can get your hands on, Sudoku's and so on. I'm just a big fan of, of, of puzzles. It's good. I find it good, a good way to kind of just focus a little bit or take your mind off things and just do something, concentrate on something, uh, a task at hand that doesn't involve work or anything else or just sort of sitting and watching TV. So uh, you know how much I love puzzles. So when I saw this story, I thought we absolutely have to talk to this guy because uh, now this all begins with an antique dress uh, made in the 1880s, apparently, that was purchased in Maine back in 2013. And the woman who bought it, who collects these kinds of dresses, found tucked away in a pocket um, some crinkly pieces of paper uh, with 23 handwritten lines on two sheets, 23 handwritten lines. It was clearly an encoded message. One of the lines read, Bismarck omit leafage buck bank. Bismarck omit leafage buck bank. Now, of course, what 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 could that mean, right? I mean, it, it's 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 not easy to figure out. It's obviously encoded, but you clearly need some kind of code book to figure out what that code would stand for. Uh, the dress and the code dated back from the 1880s, so that much was known. But even with that knowledge, the code itself stumped the global uh, crypto analytic community. For years, it was listed as one of the world's top 50 unsolved encrypted messages. That is until recently when a professor at the University of Manitoba figured it out. Now, theories about what it could be ranged from dressmaking to some really top secret stuff. It turned out to be absolutely neither, although it was military related. And Wayne Chen solved it. He's a research computer analyst at the University of Manitoba. And I thought, well, how did you figure this out? Because it had it couldn't just be sort of mathematical skills. It had to be a lot of historical research and much, much more. So joining me now to let us know exactly what it was and what it meant, what did it mean, is Wayne Chen. Wayne, thank you so much for your time tonight. Congratulations. Ah, good evening, Ben. Is this something you've always been interested in, codes and, and cracking them? I mean, I find it fascinating. I just have no aptitude for it, so I, I don't bother. But anyway. Yeah, I, I, I guess I was interested in it as a kid because I, rem- I remember owning like a kid's book on code breaking but the problem was none of my friends were interested so i couldn't convince any of them to like write code share codes with me <laughs> right yeah it's so, right. So, you, need, yeah. you need someone to, right. to write so, one for you yeah yeah so so basically the the interest lay dormant for a long time um i think i picked it up again within the last 20 years and then i, I started looking at um you know various unsolved uh ciphers um and working on a few of them but i never got into anywhere with with uh, any of them until now how, how did you how did you happen upon this one because it's a the backstory is very interesting but how did you happen yeah right upon this one? uh right so so this one i came across it uh, online in the summer of 2018 and it was being discussed in the uh, on a couple of crypto uh, uh websites and, and 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 if I remember correctly, because we've told the story a bit, but this was a uh, this was a code that was found written down in the pocket of a dress, right? A nineteenth century dress, as far as we know. Exactly, a a, a late Victorian, like eighteen eighties uh, bustle dress. So the code is 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 if I is Bismarck omit leafage buck bank, which of course now why would that be? I guess that was a hard one to figure out. I mean, you don't you wouldn't even really know where to begin, right? Yeah, the 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 reason that the uh, the uh, cryptographic community struggled with this is because it, it's 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 a code rather than a cipher, uh, and, and by that I mean that with ciphers you're substituting letters with other letters or symbols, w- with codes you're substituting words with other words or, or phrases. 
so you already have like legible, understandable English words. You don't have like scrambled letters, uh, which is what we would normally work on if it, if it were a cipher. Uh, so we don't have that many tools to attack a, a code. Right. So in this uh, case, you'd need you'd need the code book. Like you need yeah, to know right. exactly. Basically, basically, you would have to find the the original code book. And the problem with that is that there are probably hundreds of code books published during the uh, the era of the telegraph. So in this case, I mean, I gather like any great mystery solver, you start to pull at the threads, right? You start to pull and pull, looking looking if you can't just loosen one up. What? Where did you begin, and how did you manage to figure this out? Okay, so basically in 2018, I worked on it for a few months, didn't get anywhere. I had thought it was a commercial telegraphic code uh, called Slater's Code, but it, it, that wasn't it, it, it turned out. Um, so basically, I, I gave up and, and didn't look at it for another four years. So, yeah. so I picked it up again in the holiday season of 2022. And so I, I started, I looked through like a, 170 different code books, but I, I didn't find anything that really matched. So I, again... I think around Boxing Day of, of 2022, I was ready to give up again. So just a year ago. And, and then, so yeah, that's right. You went through this huge, did you, at any point, because I think at one point you start to sort of, you try to narrow down the time frame because that's important. And you try to narrow down what those words could possibly stand for, right? Like start to, so is it, is it sort of the old uh, Sherlock Holmes thing where you sort of, by the process of elimination, whatever isn't there is the answer? Is that where you, how you got to this? Yeah, well, you know, after looking through so many code books, I said, well, this is not the way to go about it because, you know, th there's, a, there's a really good possibility that the, 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 whatever code book was used might have had limited distribution and it may, there may not be any surviving copies after 130 years, right? So, you, you know, yeah. so there's a good possibility that we couldn't, that, that, you know, the code book didn't even exist anymore. Uh, so I thought, well, I'm going to stop doing this and I'm just going to take a step back from, from, from doing it this way and, and, and try kind of a, a different approach. Um, I just want to immerse myself in the, in the era of the telegraph. And I want to learn more about like how it was used and, and just, just, you know, understand the, the whole time period a bit more. So take, um, yeah, so take me back because the I guess the dress was kind of the main clue that where it the time it was from right right exactly so so according to to uh, Sarah the woman who who she's a she's a uh, an antique dress collector uh, she dated the dress to be around the the eighteen eighties period so that that gives us some clue as to what to the time period that we're dealing with. And so, and so from there, you're trying to then figure out, okay, so you have this code. What, what, would, what could possibly be using this code in North America in the 1880s? Is that, well, is that yeah, how you uh, so, so, what, so the big breakthrough was it was almost by accident. So, so basically, when I started reading the, the, uh, the, uh, the literature of the, of the time period uh, about telegraphs, uh, I just came across this book that was published in 1880. And it, it, it talked about different uses of the telegraph in different industries. So I was just looking at one chapter, and it, and it was about weather codes. So, so I began reading it, and, and, and they gave a couple of examples of, of this weather code. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, this looks kind of like my code. Interesting. You must have done so much. I mean, to get to there, you talked, you already looked through 170 code books. I mean, you must have spent a lot of time trying to, where did you go to find this stuff? Because it's not like you could pull it off the internet, right? Uh, well, some of the code books are, are online, but the other ones you would have to... Uh, like I, I had, I had, I had Slater's code, uh, my own copy of it, uh, a physical copy of it, and there were my my university library had a, a few code books as well. But uh, yeah, a, a lot of it was online or or just um, you know trying to obtain uh, like microfilm for it. 
Wow. Wayne Chan is a research computer analyst at the University of Manitoba. We're talking about uh, the silk dress cryptogram, as it is known, that he cracked. Uh, it had baffled the code-breaking community for quite a while. Uh, the words on it were Bismarck, Omit, Leafage, Buck, Bank. What does that mean? Well, Wayne, it's fascinating because it, even in modern times, we all know about sort of shortening words for texting, right? Uh, I guess back in telegraph times, uh, it was easier to come up with codes instead of having to write out long sentences about what was happening. Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, telegraphic codes were used for two main reasons. Uh, the the first one, as you mentioned, was was for economy because you were being charged by the word for for your in the telegrams, and the second reason was for pi- for our privacy because your 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 messages travel through many hands on on the way to its destination. Uh, so so there so there are codes that were used for for confidentiality and and codes used for for economy, which is the case uh, that we're seeing here. Right. And so what was it exactly? Because Bismarck is a place that much I could figure out by looking at it. But the rest of it was all very, very cryptic. Yeah. So so basically this code. OK, so first, I guess some explanation is in order. Uh, this was a code used by the U.S. Army Signal Corps or, or Signal Service, as it was called back in the 1880s. So the Signal Corps was the 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 National Weather Service for the United States back then. Uh, so it, it was passed over to civilian uh, oversight in 1891, but during this time period, the military was uh, was in charge of, of weather observations. So the message that you you're, you're talking about, uh, Bismarck, uh, omit leafage, Buck Bank. Uh, so the the first word is Bismarck, and that's that's Bismarck, North Dakota. Okay, makes sense. Yep. Yeah. So omit stood for air temperature and barometric pressure. So so the air it stood for uh, an air temperature of 56 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Okay. So, so you would know just by that that both the both the temperature and the and yeah, the they, they, pressure like, be included like, in that one word. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. They they were basically trying to save as many words as possible, and <laughs> okay. and, and the code the code continued to evolve over the years. Right. So in 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 1870, when the when the uh, when the signal service started doing the the uh, the, the weather observations, it, it took on average ten to twelve words to to encode a full report. But by the 1880s, they were able to reduce that down to an average of six or seven words. Right, like this one, right? So omit has has a dual meaning. So does so does leafage, right? Yeah, they basically they they compress so much into a single word, and it also depended on where the word was in the in in the sentence in the line. Okay. So so um so leafage was the dew point temperature, and it was 32 degrees Fahrenheit or, or zero degrees Celsius, but it it also indicated that the observation time was 10 p.m. Okay. So, so they're they're coding, uh, you know, on average two things per word. Wow! I mean, so you really do need the guide, right? You you and you found the guide, did you know? Obviously, well, yeah. And it wasn't even yeah. even finding like so. Basically, I had to wait uh, almost a month to obtain a, a, a microfiche uh, of this code. It's actually much easier now. Like a few months, like like I think um, back in September of this uh, of like 2023, uh, they finally posted the codebook online through Google Books. So you can actually look at it now. But back when I researched this, I didn't have that, uh, I didn't have that opportunity to, uh, to, to have uh, easy access to it. Right. So, so in a nutshell, what, what did Bismarck omit leafage buck bank actually I mean? You mentioned it was Bismarck, North Dakota, 50, 56 degrees Fahrenheit. It was taken at 10 p.m. The dew point was 32 Fahrenheit. And I guess we're down to buck bank. So this was really basic weather information. Yeah, exactly. So, so Buck is uh, the state—the state of the weather, which was clear. Uh, it also meant uh, there was no precipitation, and it also encoded wind direction. So, in, in this case, there was like three variables that it encoded for. So, it, it wow. was like the northerly wind direction. 
Uh, and the last word was bank, which meant uh, the wind speed, which was 12 miles an hour. And also, they also described the uh, sunset conditions, which were was clear. That's a lot of information in, in five I know. words. <laughs> yeah, six words. I mean, <laughs> you, know, you can words. imagine... You can imagine if we didn't if we didn't encode it, we would have to transmit all of this, and it, we would have you know the, the the telegram would have been it would have cost us you know ten times as much money right. to send. And, and and all this stuff was being gathered. I mean, I gather they had them in Canada as well. We were using some of the same. We were using the same telegraph system to report weather. Yeah, actually, yeah, and 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 we actually used the American code book, but it seems that we we made some changes to it because when I when I tried like so the some of the messages were Canadian stations. But when I tried decoding the the Canadian stations using the the, uh, the the code book, it didn't quite turn out exactly as it should have. Ah, uh-huh. yeah. So so it meant it meant that the Canadians had modified the code book somewhat. But the problem is I haven't been able to find any documentation on on the exact modifications. So basically, I had to reverse engineer what it would have been. Right for the on the Canadian side, and and all of this was going back. And now we get back to how this ended up in this dress. This was all going back to Washington, right? This was these message telegraphs. These messages were being sent back to a to a sort of a, a, a headquarters, and exactly. and that's so, where so this, this person would have ended up with it, right? So the 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 uh, the, the the central uh, office of the uh, Signal Corps was in Washington, and and all the messages in 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 from all the ob- observing stations in the U.S. and Canada were sent to Washington, and that's where and that's where you think that's how this note ended up in this dress. Yeah, so I mean, I, I tried to figure out. Well, I mean, I didn't have any success in trying to figure out who the the woman was, but so I, right. I decided to try to figure out where she was, and and so based on a traffic analysis of the the uh, the routes that the messages would have taken, I was trying to figure out what's the earliest convergence point where anybody would be in possession of all twenty four of these messages from all these different stations in the U.S. and Canada, mm-hmm. right? And then the the earliest convergence point. Uh, geographically was Washington. There was no earlier convergence point where anybody would have been in possession of all of these messages. Right. So it makes sense. It was some, and, and you found out, in fact, that, that there were that there were women working in, yeah, was, in this which, department. Which is, which then. Is, yeah. Right. Exactly. I, well, I found that very surprising because I had thought when I when I figured out that it was, it might have been in Washington at at the signal service office. Well, I thought, well, what's the, what's the likelihood of a woman working at a military organization back in the 1880s? So I was really surprised to find that there was like like almost 20 women working there. So I, I guess this now leads to the one last mystery. So you figured out what it meant, and now you have the code book online. So you've, you've cracked this, uh, but we still don't know who that dress belonged to. Yeah, I mean, I can narrow down, you know, the, the list to like maybe 15 women working there. But uh, beyond that, I, I can't really say uh, who it is. Right. And and you mentioned that, I mean, that there's been descriptions of the pocket as sort of this idea that maybe this was secreted away somehow, but it really wasn't, right? This was just sort of a standard pocket on a dress of this kind. I know we're not experts in Victorian era dresses, but you become one. You become one. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I spoke to an expert on, on, on women's pockets who said that this wasn't an unusual pocket. So, uh, yeah, although it's hidden, it, it's, it's, it's just kind of it's hidden from view, but it's, it's not that hard to access from, from what I understand. Amazing. Well, you must. I mean, it must feel very gratifying to have broken this code. I mean, it took you. A, you really had to work around it, right? It wasn't just math. It was all kinds of investigative skills you had to turn to to make to find yeah, out what yeah, this exactly. one. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 really more of a like a historical uh, uh, research project rather than than like a a, a traditional cryptanalysis uh, of the problem. Well, Wayne. Thank you so much for walking us through that. Congratulations on solving, and I, I look forward to figuring out if you figure out uh, who the dress belonged to. We'll have to. 
we'll have to catch up. Yeah, that's that's the next uh, thing to do, right? <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. In fact, why don't we go around and confess some of the ways that we've already fudged on our resolutions? Well, I said that I would eat more vegetables, and I haven't yet. But it's okay. I still have time. Since last year, I ate none. Okay, well, my confession is that today I had a sip of coffee. But that's fine. Is it? Yes, because with all of your support, by this time next year, maybe I'll be down to one glass of iced tea a week. Next year? Come on. I mean, what is the point? What is the point of that? I made a resolution to floss, and I did it. 1201, January 1st, bam, blood everywhere. Ah, the office. There's always an office skit when it comes to something like resolutions, right? I don't know if you're back at work today. Obviously, I am. Um, and we talked a little bit about resolutions. I don't know if you did or not. Uh, I don't make resolutions every year. I mean, sometimes you just feel like, what's the point? What's the point? Uh, you know, if you want to break a bad habit, you can do it any time, right? But as it turns out, doing it on a milestone, like a birthday or New Year's Day, is a pretty good tactic, apparently. Uh, so I was working out some jet lag, and I was asleep before. We were asleep before New Year's, before the New Year was rung in on uh, on Sunday night. But I managed to conjure up a few resolutions, so I'm going to try to exercise more in the morning now because it's something I never get around to doing. Um, and eat fewer cookies after work. That's my other one because I tend to tend to gorge on those cookies once work is done. And that's just not a great habit in the long run. Um, spend less time scrolling through social media, spend more time reading the basic stuff, right? The basic stuff. Maybe you made some too. If you did, let me know what they are. one 399 9898 But it turns out there are some common myths around how to properly set and meet goals that can get in the way and make it tougher for us to keep our resolutions. It's a bit about how it is we approach the resolution itself. Uh, maybe the goals are a little too lofty, right? When something smaller would be better, something easier to break down into more manageable steps. Uh, Jim Davies is a professor in the Institute of Cognitive Science and a director of the Science of Imagination Lab at Carleton University in Ottawa. He's asked about this often, so we thought we'd bring him in uh, to get a little help on how to make 2024 a success for all of our, our collective resolutions. Jim, thanks so much for your time. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I know you get a lot of, I get, you get a lot of calls about this every year, and uh, it's interesting because we repeat the same things again and again, and I know this because I make resolutions and tend to break them, but, but I guess part of the problem here is that we treat January the 1st as if it were some sort of magical day whereby we could change all our bad habits, and uh, the brain just, uh, the imagination doesn't even work that way. Well, actually, it is kind of a magical day. The studies show that if you just try to make a resolution at some random time, it's not nearly as effective as if you make it at a significant time. And significant times could be when you're moving or getting divorced or getting married or a new job or losing an old job, uh, but also just new times, times that feel like you're turning over a new leaf. People tend to keep their goals better. It's it even has an effect weekly. Like if you have, if you decide to start something at the beginning of the week, you're more likely to stick to it than if you decide in the middle of the week. So yeah, I mean, even though New Year's resolutions get a little bit of a bad rep, they actually work better than resolutions made at other times. Interesting. I mean, that, 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 uh, that actually makes perfect sense because we, do, we are motivated to do it, right? We are motivated at the beginning of the year to try to do something uh, different. We probably put it off over the holidays as well. Uh, goals, <laughs> you mentioned goal setting, though. Goal setting tends yeah. to be a real problem. So New Year's resolutions, I mean, goals are one way to think about them, right? Like 
goals can be described kind of in an abstract way. Those are fine, but you will increase your chances of success if your goals are a little bit more specific. And what I mean by that is that they're behavioral. So rather than just saying, oh, I wish I exercised more or I resolved to exercise more, you can say something like, I'm going to exercise twice a week. Or, uh, you know, I want to write a screen, but I want to get a movie produced. That's really abstract. But what do you actually have to do to get a movie produced, right? You have to brainstorm, you have to write, maybe join a writing club. So I think that if you're serious about changing your life and you want to fulfill your goals, it actually really helps to think about the actual behavioral changes that you want to make in your life. Right. Like any problem, you have to break it down into its components and then tackle the components, right? Yeah. Not Yes. Not only that, though, but but what you actually have to do, like what are your actions? So like getting a new house, of course, you have components of finding a house and getting the money and everything. But like those, you know, behaviors are like, okay, no, I'm going to actually get on websites half an hour a, a week and look at houses. <laughs> right. Or, <laughs> you know? or write 400 words a day of, of my screenplay, for instance, or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or work on it for half an hour a day or something like that. Yeah, that's way better. And another really important thing is that people tend to think of that keeping your resolutions is all about how much willpower you have and your ability to stick to things. But I'm of the opinion that willpower can really only get you so far. Willpower does not help you unless you're actively thinking about the thing that you want to do. So if you want to like stop eating so much candy, if you're in the middle of a conversation, you could eat a lot of candy without even thinking about it, right? So what I encourage people to do is to try to make their behavior change habitual. And habits are not really goal-directed. It uses a different part of the brain. And you might use willpower to help install the habit. But over time, it becomes the thing that you do without thinking. And that's when the change really happens. That's how you that's how you affect change in your life, for good or bad. Jim is not eating a bowl of gummy bears as we speak, by the way, just in <laughs> anyone who is ordering. Because you said that that just repeating something doesn't necessarily work, just repeating the same behavior again and again. You need to have, I, I gather, a, a motivation or you need to be able to to, to ingrain that behavior, uh, not just No, no, it. no. Repetition no. actually works all by itself. Does it? Um, okay. I'll give you an example from my own life. So I, I realized I wasn't eating enough vegetables. And eating vegetables is problematic because uh, I was constantly trying to think of what could we have for dinner and what kind of vegetable could we have? And it was just a lot of work. And then I thought to myself, something I knew is that people's mornings are way more regular than their afternoons or evenings, meaning that most mornings look the same as every other morning. And because of that, it's the best time to install a new habit. So I just said to myself, you know what? I'm going to eat salad with breakfast. I buy like those mixed greens with yep. like a lot of red lettuce in it and stuff. I get a really nice olive oil. I throw in some blueberries and it's become a habit, you know, and mostly because of just repetition. So now I don't even think about it. Every morning I have a hard boiled egg and a bowl of salad. And now I'm getting a lot more vegetables and I, and I don't even have to like think about it. I don't have to talk myself into it. I don't have to use willpower. Just merely doing it enough times and keeping the salad around in the house installed that habit. And now I'm ba basically effortlessly getting more vegetables in my diet. Right. And, and, and not having to worry about it later in the day. Right. Because I could be going out for pasta dinner and they're not serving vegetables. And then what? You know, so. <laughs> right. It's interesting because mine this year was to exercise more in the morning because I tend to only exercise in the afternoon. But my afternoons tend to get away from me. I'm working and so on. So I don't do it. So mine, exactly. to, mine exactly. was to exercise first thing in the morning. I'm still it's the second. I'm still struggling with it, though. Well, I'll say something about exercise. You know, um, exercising in the morning or the afternoon have different benefits. Uh, exercise in the morning is better for compliance. So people who exercise in the morning exercise more often. People who exercise in the afternoon, uh, it's better for their energy. They enjoy it more. 
but they're a little bit less compliant. Also, they're less prone to injury in the afternoon. All this stuff is in my book, Being the Person Your Dog Thinks You Are, by the way, if you guys right. want to go into more, more uh, into it. But if you hate exercise, morning is the time to do it because it's more likely to become a habit. Yeah. How much, I mean, there's a lot of pressure. I, I was reading, you know, as someone, of, of course, on Facebook today, someone was already confessing to having broken, having broken all their 2024 resolutions. And of course, we're only about 48 hours in, not even. Is, is it important not to be too hard on yourself? I mean, you've, you've decided to take this day and to say, I'm going to make a change in the way I do something. And, and of course, invariably, you're going to fall down at some point. But you, you, I guess you have to be somewhat easy on yourself, too, because what you're trying to change is a behavior. You don't need to sort of cold turkey can be tough, in other words. Yeah, I mean, I don't like it when people say I've broken my resolution as though the whole thing is out the window. Yeah. I, I'll tell you, you know, I, was, I have a lot of experience with New Year's resolutions because for about 20 years, I had a new resolution for my with my friend that we would do all year, like once a year. And the one year it was not swearing. And very quickly, I, a swear word came out of my mouth. But that's because it's a very primitive part of the brain that causes swearing and it's out of your control. And, and so, yeah, I broke it many times. But I'll tell you, after three months, of constantly, oops, no, no, I shouldn't be swearing, say different words, whatever. After three months, I stopped completely. So the idea that I broke my resolution, well, okay, technically I did. What I don't like is that I almost think people think they use their having broken their resolution as an excuse to stop trying. Right. But they, and that's really doing yourself a disservice. You should see it as, especially if it's something that's a split second thing, like swearing or popping a piece of candy in your mouth or having a drink or something like that. It's going to take some time to change the way that you approach life. And that can take a couple of months, right? And you shouldn't see it as a all or nothing fail or success. Jim, I really like that idea of, of making it somewhat competitive as well with, with someone else, because that is a motivator as well. Like there are there are ways you can, and I, I really don't like this term, but you can set yourself up for success more, or you could set yourself up for failure. No, I, I think that's absolutely true. People ask me like, you know, should people set, attainable, like easy resolutions. And I really think this has to do with your personality. Like some people are very motivated by ambitious goals. You know, um, I, I like some people are, you shoot for the sun and hit the moon rather than, you know, shoot for New York and hit New Jersey. You know, it, it's, but some people all, some people are very sensitive to failure. So I, I think that it, you should read yourself. You know, are you the kind of person who, if you feel like you're failing at the resolution, you're going to find that really demotivating? Or are you going to see it as a real challenge, right? Like when I was writing my last book, I had a goal to write a thousand words a day. And I, I got the book done in a year and it was really great. And that's really ambitious. And yeah, not every day I did it, but I didn't throw up my hands and say, forget it. I kept a spreadsheet and I, I was proud of myself when I did do it. And it was sort of a slow and steady wins the race. So like the very ambitious goals work for me, but I'm also not super sensitive to failure. Jim Davies is a professor in the Institute of Cognitive Science and director of the Science of Imagination Lab at Carleton University. We've been talking about hanging on or making your resolutions work for you this year. As Jim pointed out, uh, it is a good time of year. New Year's is a good time to set some goals on things you might want to improve upon or change in the upcoming year. J Jim, I guess just some, some rules of thumb here, because as you pointed out, you don't want to be too hard on yourself. You don't want to give up too quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, you know, oftentimes we do make resolutions that aren't I think we make the resolutions we, we, we think we should make, not necessarily the ones we know we can, we can actually keep, which is, which is a bit of a challenge. I do that too, obviously. I think there's two things there that you've hit on. One is that it really should be something you want. Sometimes you'll just like hear out of the blue, like, oh, you should meditate every day. And then just say, well, I'm going to meditate every day. But if you don't, if it's not really something important to you, something you really want, you're not going to do it. 
you are probably going to make try to make changes in your life for the better and you're and, and you can't do them all at once because you just simply can't keep them all in mind so you know picking the things you know the stuff that's most important <laughs> your health your finances your your relationships you know <clears throat> getting those out of the way and and getting that prioritized is good but maybe not all at once right and slow and slow starts are really great I, I think this is especially true for diet change and exercise. If you go from like, you know, eating McDonald's and potato chips every day and you're just going to be like, nope, tomorrow I'm, you know, starting New Year's Day, I'm going to be vegan. And, you know, that is not going to work. I could have a I salad for breakfast. I could have a salad for breakfast. It's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, salad for breakfast. Crazy. Um, but, you know, if you start or exercise, you know, you could actually hurt yourself if you don't exercise. And then the first day of the year, you go all out and run five miles, you know, you're going to hurt yourself. So it's, you know, these, these resolutions, if they are challenging, you can actually build in time to help, help yourself. So maybe with exercise for the first two weeks, you're just going to walk for half an hour a day. And then for the two weeks after that, or the, you know, even the first month, you're just going to walk more and more briskly. And then maybe the second, you're going to use a rowing machine or, or run or something and, and gradually build up to where you want to go. But you build, you put in this, this gradual ranking up of what you're going to do uh, over time in the resolution itself. And the same thing can go for your diet, right? You could start with, okay, no dessert after 8 p.m. Yeah, the first few days, you're going you're gonna to be hustling to eat your dessert before 8 but, you know, you start bringing the, the time earlier and earlier and or something. I, I'm just making stuff off the top of my head. But, no, but you know, no, trying to change it all at once is really hard. How hard should you be on yourself? Because you mentioned it earlier. Sometimes people give up on resolutions, like I proudly give up on resolutions on January the 2nd or 3rd and sort of brag about it. And other people are very can be very hard on themselves if they if they don't live up to what they had what they had written down on the, you know, late at night on the 31st. Uh, how hard should you be on yourself when it comes to these things? Being hard on yourself sort of has two meanings. Like, I think you should be hard on yourself in the sense that if you really want something, you should be continually trying to find ways to get it. But you should not be hard on yourself in terms of being unforgiving. So if you try something and it doesn't work very well, maybe that's something that needs practice. Like many things need <laughs> practice and you're not good at it the first time you do it. And also, since you're trying to deal with habits, habits take time to get installed. And you, you are going to forget about your resolution. You're going to fall into your old habits when you're thinking about something else. And it just simply takes time. So to think of yourself as having failed before you've even given a reasonable amount of time for a habit to be installed is psychologically unrealistic and definitely being too hard on yourself. So you should acknowledge that, you know, depending on how hard the, the new habit is, at least, you know, two or three months to get it going, you're going to forget, you're going to get lazy, whatever. But, you know, after three months, then maybe you've given it a good try and maybe you should try another tack or maybe pick a different goal. Maybe it was too ambitious or something. But yes, people people uh, shouldn't just throw up their hands at the first sign of obstacle. Jim, wise advice as always. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Happy New Year, everybody. Good luck with your resolutions. We were talking about New Year's resolutions in the last half hour and how to stick to them. If one of yours is curiosity, I'm a curious person. Uh, it helps if you do a job like mine to want to find out things and to want to understand uh, why people think the way they do or why the people act the way they do. Of course, growing up, you know, you read all these different sort of conflicting things about curiosity. I've read that curiosity is the compass that leads us to our passions. That sounds really encouraging, doesn't it? But we always remember as children, curiosity killed the cat. How many times? What does that even mean, by the way? 
way. But still, it's so it's a warning, right? It's just keep your nose keep your nose out of it. In other words, um, we get different advice on the benefits and potential perils of asking questions or sticking one's nose in, so to speak. But if practiced properly, if deployed tactfully, maybe curiosity is actually a really great thing. A way not only to know stuff, but to better understand both people and the ideas they hold and why they hold them, right? Uh, despite all the information that's available to us these days, it can sometimes feel like we live in a bit of an, an incurious time. I don't mean that in terms of incurious about finding stuff out, but maybe incurious about why other people think the way they do. We're so quick to write off people who don't think, uh, who we don't think we agree with or that we don't agree with, period. Um, but either way, it's something my next guest not only preaches, but practices, curiosity, that is. Uh, having set out to find out more about people and the places um, that would usually be far outside his usual haunts in the Bay Area, he's actually sort of tested this theory about what it's like to be truly curious. Uh, the book that resulted from it is called Seek, How Curiosity Can Transform Your Life and Change the World. And the author, curiosity expert, uh, Scott Shigioka joins me now. Uh, Scott, thank you so much. Happy New Year. Thank you so much. Happy New Year to you. Lovely introduction. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's such a fascinating topic. And uh, I, I was really I, to be honest, I was really curious about how you embarked upon it. What what got you curious into in, curious about curiosity? Absolutely. Well, I've um, you know worked at UC Berkeley's uh, Greater Good Science Center, really understanding how does how do skills like curiosity help us to you know bridge the divide here in the United States? How does it help us to strengthen our relationships with those we love, our neighbors, um, or those who we disagree with? Like you said. But as I was doing all of this research and learning more about it, I wanted to not just be in my ivory tower at a university. I wanted to get out there and actually try some of these research-based practices. And so I set off on a 13-month journey in my Prius, which is very much like a California cliche. And <laughs> I traveled to Trump rallies. I traveled to a mega church as a, a queer person. I traveled to and lived in Royal Appalachia and the South, places I've never lived in before. And I came in not with any weapons. I came in with a deep sense of curiosity to see if I could forge new relationships with people. And it was such a beautiful, heart-expanding experience. Yeah, Scott, I mean, I was, I was interested to know, um, did you feel like you weren't what did you feel like you didn't know about, about uh, that you didn't understand is probably the better word because that's what the curiosity is all about. What did you feel like you didn't understand about that world that you weren't even being exposed to in your day-to-day -day life? Yeah, I mean, I even remember going to a Trump rally in Minnesota and talking to someone there and saying, you know, I've, I've really never had a deep conversation uh, about meaningful issues um, that haven't led to an argument, you know, um, when I think about, you know, maybe family reunions or, you know, some of the spaces I had been gathered in. And so I came up to this Trump voter and I said, you know, I, I'm only basing everything I know off of the news or off of social media. And I know as a storyteller that the best way to learn about someone is by asking them directly, by actually having a conversation and, and learning and exchanging ideas and stories and perspectives. We're going to be standing in this line for five hours waiting for Trump to speak, you know, to get into the arena. Would you be open to having a conversation with me? 
And, you know, I never lied about who I was. I always, you know, was clear about my views. I'm progressive. I did not vote for Trump. Um, but coming in with that openness and that curiosity almost took them aback in a positive way. I mean, they, they kind of leaned in and, you know, they told me in the conversations that this is the first time that they hadn't been attacked for who they voted for. And I learned a lot through that conversation. And curiosity is contagious. So they also asked me questions. And I'd like to say that they learned a lot about me, too, and my perspectives and experiences and stories. Yeah, it can be infectious, can it? I mean, it's the yeah. idea of being heard, of being seen. Yeah, and the research supports that, too. I mean, we all want to feel like we matter, and that's what curiosity does, right? When we're genuinely interested in someone, you know, whether it's a romantic partner when they walk through the door after work or our kids or, you know, our neighbor, and we ask them questions and we're genuinely interested in their lives and what they think and what they feel and what they believe, they feel seen and they feel heard and they feel like they matter at the end of the day. And that's what we all want and we're all craving for is we want to feel like we matter, that we belong. And right now, as you mentioned, we're living in this era of incuriosity where we're canceling each other, we're blocking friends and family because they believe different things from us. And we are choosing to move away and turn against and away the people even that we love or those that we don't yet even know. Um, and I want us to move forward into a new direction where, you know, we aren't breaking and, and fracturing our relationships because of differences, but instead are entering into a space of curiosity so that we can learn from one another and move forward together. What do you think has led us to this era of incuriosity because I've, i mean obviously i stole that term from you by, by the way uh, this is something that you've mentioned um that that what, what do you think because it feels like we have so much knowledge at our fingertips as i mentioned yeah. you can yeah. find out about if you're curious in this sort of standard way of using the term if you're curious about you know the origins of something or you know the greatest disco hits of the 70s you could look it all up in about in a nanosecond right but right but, right. but you're right it feels like we're, we're curious about facts but we're not as curious about each other and why we believe what we believe and th that was a really interesting yeah. point i thought yeah there's all these myths we have about curiosity one that the only curious folks are kids you know only children are curious or only artists are curious but when you look at the meta-analysis of the research what we find is that Actually, we get more curious as we age. So our elders before cognitive decline are the most curious amongst us, uh, which makes sense. The more we know, the more we want to know, the more and we get more curious in different ways. We might not be asking um, why questions all the time like we did as kids, like I did that as a kid. But, you know, we're, we're thinking about purpose. We're thinking about meaning. We're thinking about our relationships and our emotions and our connections to one another. And, and so the way we get curious changes. So that's one of the myths. The other big myth is that we think about it as only an intellectual tool when it's also a heart-centered tool. You know, we don't just need to research things. We need to be curious with people and with ourselves. And so I think those two uh, uh, sort of mis misconceptions hold us back. But then there's also a lot of things I read about in the book from social media and the news, which tend to have algorithms that um, you know, make us seem more inflammatory and more divided than we really are. Um, that silence, you know, um, certain voices from being heard or seen, this cancel culture that we're all currently living in. And, you know, trauma, you know, trauma can, you know, I found by talking to trauma-informed therapists, when we're experiencing trauma, it's really hard for us to get curious. But paradoxically, when we get curious, that's how we heal. Uh, Kevin Becker, one of the therapists I interviewed, said curiosity is the barometer of healing. So this idea that we're all really hurt 
And it's hard to be curious when you're hurt, but the way to heal and the way to move forward is actually through our curiosity. Yeah. How, how were you? Res- I mean, you mentioned it already, but so you, you spent some time in Appalachia. You, you lived in the South. You went to Trump rallies. You went to mega churches. These are all things that are yeah. clearly outside of what your day-to-day existence was like yeah. before. I, and, and you didn't just drop in. You actually lived there, right? Yeah. You spent some time there. To, yeah. what, what, was yeah. that, what was that like for you? Well, what I, re- I remember when I was leaving the Bay Area, which is where I've lived for most of my adult life, which is a progressive bastion, not to say that there aren't you know, more conservative or different kinds of folks from all around the country and world that live in the Bay Area, but it does tend to have a particular dominant makeup. And many of my friends were really worried for me. I'm a very queer, I dress flamboyantly, I'm, you know, a, you know, Asian American, a person of color. And, you know, they, ha- they wanted me to bring a gun or bring a knife or bring pepper spray, like something to defend myself. And it just created this context and this culture of fear, which I think is just what was happening with my friends and I as a microcosm of what's happening in society. We tend to fear the others. Um, anyone that we deem as the other or an us versus them. And so, you know, I was pretty scared going into all of these experiences. I'm not going to lie there. Um, but curiosity is also an ext- a force that creates courage. And I was like, you know, I have this, you know, skill of curiosity within me. And I'm just going to go out there, be courageous and see where it leads. And when I lived, you know, with folks who were very different from me, or when I had conversations at that Trump rally, which is folks voting for a president, I probably would never vote for in my life. Mm. Coming in with that curiosity actually opened up, you know, really rich conversations and relationships. I broke bread with folks. I still have a lot of these relationships that I made on the road trip. And I realized almost like exercising a muscle, you get better and better at it the more you practice it. And, you know, the exercises get easier and easier. And by the end of the trip, I was feeling really confident, you know, going into these conversations with folks who were very different from me. Yeah, it's interesting you put it that way, that because we often think of curiosity as being something, well, childlike, innate, right? Something that's natural to us, something we we quell over time. Uh, And yet, the way you put it is it's actually something you need to hone. You need to hone your curiosity because it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. You talk a bit, I think, about about sort of predatory uh, curiosity, which is not really the same thing as as curiosity itself. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is something we are all born with. Curiosity is something that we know through neuroscience and psychology. It's something we're you're born with that's passed down from our ancestors. We needed to have someone be curious in the group. You know, our ancestors needed that to find water, food sources, to you know, communicate, to learn how to build tools and um, track, track animals, etc. Um, but, you know, curiosity is also something, like you said, that can be honed. And it's similar to creativity, right? You know, artists hone their creative um, sort of skills in the same way that a journalist or a researcher might hone their curiosity skills. Um, but we can also do it in ways that aren't related to our occupation. And that's really what I write about in the book. How do we hone this muscle of curiosity, really exercise it in an accessible and a fun and engaging way in our own personal lives. And whether that's with a romantic partner, with our children, with neighbors, our friends, our family, or even in the professional, you know, force too. I've, you know, written with the Harvard Business Review and I write in the book about how curiosity is so needed in teams and organizations as well um, for similar reasons. So it's something we can all, we all are born with and we all can exercise it in a myriad of different ways and get better and better at it um, so that we become confident and more closely connected to the people who are around us and also to ourselves because curiosity isn't just about getting curious with others. It's also about going inward and get curious about 
what you want, what you need, what you believe in, what your intentions are for the year since we're at the new year, you know, what, what, um, you know, what lights you up, what's, you know, bringing you down, like all of those things that are so important for us to explore. Yeah, I can only imagine that speaking to people who who come from different backgrounds, who who you might have thought were very different from you setting out, uh, that you must have learned things about yourself on that journey too, because you would have had to, because it's it's interesting seeing yourself reflected in somebody else as well, and the kind of questions they would ask back. Absolutely, I mean, I as a queer person, like many other queer folks, grew up, you know, in a dominant Christian narrative that, um, in my personal case told me that, you know, being queer is shameful, it's a sin, it's, um, it's you know, made me develop a lot of shame and, and self-hatred. And I also grew up with discrimination towards, you know, folks who identified as Christian who are walking that faith path because of my previous hurt. And, you know, through my, you know, journey of curiosity and actually getting to know people who are Christian but are also accepting and maybe are even also queer as clergy or, you know, are, you know, followers, um, you know, of, of Christianity, I, I learned, wow, like, no two Christians are the same in the same way that no two queer folks are the same, or no two conservatives are the same, or no two 55-year-olds are the same. And and that's reminded me to, you know, really suspend my own assumptions and biases, and to come into every interaction with curiosity. And what we do so often now as a culture is we see someone for their group identities, you know, where they come from, you know, where they live, what they do for work, you know, how old they are, what faith they have, their sexuality, and we have all of these judgments about them. But curiosity is actually the antidote of judgment. And it allows us to get to know someone, not put them on the defensive, and feel closer to them and understand them in a deeper way. We're talking curiosity this half hour with Scott Shigioka, who's author of Seek, How Curiosity Can Transform Your Life and Change the World. Uh, Scott, you've mentioned this, that curiosity is not just sort of, you know, barreling ahead and asking questions of all people at all times, uh, that you need to sort of set yourself up to be curious, properly curious, and also be respectful of the person you're being curious about, right? That there is, it's a bit like a, it's a bit like a dance. It's a dance. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you just, you talked about uh, earlier in the program, predatory curiosity, which is a term I coined uh, to, to define, you know, when we're, it looks like we're being curious, but we're actually trying to advance our own agenda. So, you know, we are asking questions, we're leaning in, you know, we're being open-ended, but, you know, we actually are doing that to share our own point of view or to have a gotcha moment and take down someone else's point of view. Um, you know, that's not real curiosity. That's predatory curiosity. True curiosity shouldn't have an agenda. There shouldn't be an underlying motive for it. It's not what a prosecutor or a detective does. It is truly about understanding, listening, taking in what someone's saying, and even possibly being transformed by what they say. Um, And to your point, there's also boundaries to curiosity. You know, sometimes curiosity can be nosy or a microaggression or invasive or even counterintuitive to connection. You know, you can, you know, for example, asking to touch someone's hair or, you know, putting the burden on someone else to explain their own culture when they don't want to or asking like deeply invasive personal questions. Um, you know, you have to recognize that curiosity is earned. It's not deserved. It requires you to have like a real relationship, to have trust and to know when you're veering into um, territory that's you know, the opposite of what you're trying to do. So the three questions I kind of keep in mind and I talk about in the book on how do you know if you're being curious or nosy as an example, um, or is, is first, am I the right person? 
So am I the right person to be asking this question? Is the right time, right person? Am I the right person to be curious right now? The second question is, is this the right time uh, for me to be curious right now? And then the third is, do I know when to stop or slow down? If, you know, maybe you see that they're non-verbally showing to you that they're feeling uncomfortable, maybe that's the time to reel back your curiosity. Um, so there's uh, three questions, and I go more into depth into, in my book about, you know, how to know when you're being truly curious versus when you're engaging in predatory curiosity or nosiness or uh, invasive curiosity. Right. And I suppose if you know the answer to number three, then you might be able to to gingerly step, step into one or two, right? If you know when to stop or slow down, then you can perhaps figure out whether you're the right person to ask or whether it's the right time, as long as you're open to reading the signals, right? Like you're not just barreling in the way I am right now, for instance, given the circumstances, <laughs> um, but that you're actually taking the time to figure out whether, whether it's the right. Because one of the things that I find challenging with curiosity sometimes, just at a personal level, is the times where you want to ask the questions or you're curious to know are often the times that are the most sensitive for the person you want to know them from, right? Uh, that can yeah, often yeah. be the situation. And, and I find that's always a challenge. I think that that makes people incur- scared to be curious sometimes. Yeah, and I think that makes sense. I think that's why we also have to, I wrote a whole section about, you know, how curiosity requires a lot of grace and a lot of self-compassion. You know, we're going to be curious in moments and we're going to mess up, you know, and how do we, and someone's going to be curious towards us and we're going to think it's invasive. And how do we extend grace you know, to that person, uh, let them know clearly what our boundaries are. And, you know, like, trust that they're going to listen to that, and, you know, follow suit and, you know, stop their line of questions or move on to a different topic. And I think the same is true about self compassion, you know, sometimes we're going to ask the wrong questions, you know, say the wrong thing at the wrong time, Um, you know, and that's, you know, we have to practice that, you know, self-compassion, like, you know, letting ourselves know that, you know, we are imperfect and we're going to get it wrong sometimes. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, being a human is messy business. And so, you know, we can learn from these moments and grow. And, you know, the next time that we're going to be curious is going to be even better. Because like I said, it's, it's like, you know, exercising a muscle, you're going to get better and better at it as the time goes on. You know, and I also talk about my road trip, but, you know, this is after many, many years of honing in and researching curiosity. I don't expect everyone who reads my book to, you know, go to the political party, opposing political party rally as like their first step. You know, just like you're in a weightlifting gym, you kind of have to start with the five, you know, kilogram or five pound, you know, dumbbells, you know, so you, you start small and you start with the folks that you love and that you trust and that you see all the time um, before you sort of move out of your comfort zone to get curious about those who you don't have those established relationships with. Right. I, I, I don't have a ton of time, Sally, because I have a ton of other questions to ask you, but I wanted to add, though, if you were to start in one place, uh, you say, I see you're thinking to myself, I'd like to be more curious. Where would you begin? Would you begin sort of at the grocery store? Would you begin with family and friends asking questions that you mightn't have felt comfortable asking before? Yeah, I think the one thing that I would think about as a immediate first step is what is the quality of the questions that you're asking folks? Any, in any context or with anyone that you know or love, um, I find that many people ask shallow questions, um, which only gets you some specific information or data points about who someone is, maybe like what's your name or what do you do for work or where do you live? And so I challenge folks in the book to ask deeper questions that go underneath the surface that allow you to learn more about someone. So instead of what's your name, you might also ask, you know, what's the story of your name? Who named you? Do you like your name? You know, who, uh, you to tell me yeah. more about the meaning behind it. Um, instead of what do you do for work? Maybe, you know, what excites you with your job or what 
does purpose look like for you? Or what makes you come alive in life? You know, those kinds of questions lead you to a much richer and more interesting um, place. But I have, you know, over 12 other practices that don't even have anything to do with questions in the book as well that are also, you know, much more, uh, you know, that have a lot of um, sort of gravity and, and efficacy to it too. One other that I'll, I'll, I'll name is just, you know, becoming an emitter, you know, saying when you got something wrong or saying when you don't know something, I think we could be afraid to do that in today's culture. But, you know, opening ourselves up in that way um, can really lead to a lot of curiosity and understanding that we might have closed ourselves off to in the first place. Scott, I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So happy to be on the show. This is a fact you may be familiar with. You've probably heard this several times today. By 9.27 a.m. Uh, today, the average top Canadian CEO had already made the average Canadian worker's annual salary. That's right. By time you'd cleared your email inbox this morning, the average Canadian CEO had already made the average Canadian salary. Um, top CEOs in this country now make 246 times more than average workers, 246. According to a new report called Canada's Gilded Age, the country's highest paid CEOs earned on average $14.9 million in 2022. That was 600,000 more than in 2021. Of course, it is a record, 14.9 million. Uh, CP reporter Karen Rebo runs down the list of chief executives who earned the most. The highest paid CEO is Executive Chairman J. Patrick Doyle of Restaurant Brands International. That's the company that owns Tim Hortons, Burger King and Popeyes. The CCPA report says Doyle made $152.8 million, all of which came exclusively in the form of share and option-based awards. Coming in second was CEO Matthew Proud of software company Diane Durham. He earned $98.9 million. And Magna International CEO Swami Kota Geary was a distant third, earning $36.4 million. Only four of the top 100 earners are women, so not much has changed. There are more, uh, as many named Mark as there are uh, women who are in the top 100 this year. Uh, it is always one of those those lists that come, that come out. Uh, we see it each and every year, and it always seems that the gap gets wider. Uh, why is it why is it a problem and what can we do about it? David McDonald is a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He is author of the report called Canada's New Gilded Age, and he joins me now. David, thank you so much for your time tonight. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. This is an annual uh, This is an annual refrain, right? We always figure out that by the time the day's, day's done today, the average Canadian CEO will have made the average Canadian worker's salary. Uh, I mean, that in its, of itself is not new, but it seems to be accelerating this year. Yeah, I mean, today it was almost before the day started. It was 9.27 this morning uh, when the uh, CEOs had made $60,000, which is what the average worker will expect to make all year. I mean, average 14.9 million, new all-time high uh, in terms of pay. But I think more importantly, we always do this comparison of CEO pay to that of the average worker. It's sort of the gap between them. And that is also at a new all-time high. Uh, been going up pretty consistently. You know, we've been doing this since 2008, as I was looking back at our records. You know, we're closing in on 250 times CEO pay compared to average worker pay, 250. When we started, it was 150. In the 90s, it was 100. In the 80s, it was 50 times. So CEOs have always been paid more, uh, a lot more, you know, 50 times more, still a lot more. Uh, it's just that the the gap has grown larger and larger, even over the relatively short period we've been tracking it annually. 
What, what was driving it this year? Because I gather, I mean, we know that corporate profits have been up. Inflation is uh, is helping see that see to that. I mean, salaries are up a little bit as well. But uh, but clearly, this has been a good year for corporations. And good good or bad, it seems like the CEOs get compensated for it. Yeah. So this is about bonuses. It's always about bonuses. Um, CEO salaries are becoming increasingly irrelevant. Uh, they made up eight percent this year of the total pay package. Um, the performance that's pay- it. Eight eh? percent. That's yeah. it. Eight percent of yeah, their that's, salaries, that's right? The average, yeah. So the performance based pay now is eighty four percent. It used to be seventy when we started. It was seventy percent. Now it's eighty four percent. And these are bonuses, so they're based on company performance of some description. Different companies have different performance measures, but broadly, if corporate profits are up, if revenues are up, uh, then you get a bonus basically. And twenty twenty one, twenty twenty two, record corporate profits driven by inflation. Companies saying, look, we're just raising prices because our costs are going up. Turns out that's not what the data says. The data says, yeah, you raise your prices and then some and everybody's getting paid. So inflation drives corporate profits, corporate profits drive bonuses. And that's why you're seeing these record amounts in, in 21 and 22. Now, you'd think that if times did get more normally or even bad, that you would see a drop in compensation if this equation actually held true. What's interesting is you look back at 2020, legitimately a pretty bad year for corporate profits. Uh, they plummeted as parts of the economy shut down. Corporate, uh, sorry, executive compensation actually went up slightly in 2020 above 2019. Wasn't a record, but incredibly it went up. And what I sort of underappreciated at the time is how much and how flexible these bonus formulas are after the fact. And so you get to the end of the year and it looks like your CEO is going to take a pay cut because the bonuses are going to plummet because profits are terrible. Change the formula. So that's what happened in 2020. Half of the CEOs on our top 100 list either changed their formulas or received a bailout from the feds or both. So, you know, these bonus formulas that look like they're based on merit aren't based on merit. They're based on luck and they pay out in good times and in bad times they get capped so they don't go down. Yeah, because you would think if it was tied to performance, if 84% of the pay was, and, and you know, these large paychecks were tied to actual performance of what they're of what they're meant to be doing. In other words, is the team winning or not, then fine, right? I mean, of course, it makes sense for, for it to work that way. Uh, but if if it's a bit rigged, and I, I, I use that word loosely, by the way, but if it's a bit rigged, then then what are we to make of it, right? I mean, how, how do you, it, it means essentially that they get paid no matter what. Yeah, this isn't a, this isn't pay based on merit. This is pay based on power. Uh, and a corporate culture that ensures that pay rates go up. You know, you hire a compensation consultant. The compensation consultant says, you guys are doing a great job. You should be paid in the top 25% of all companies. Well, all companies can't be paid in the top 25% of all companies, right? Someone's got to make the bottom 75%. And if your pay compensation uh, consultant comes in and says, you guys are doing pretty badly, you know, your C-suite are a bunch of schmucks, so they should see pay cut. Probably not hiring that guy back next year. And so it, it becomes a game in essence. You know, it's a, it's a corporate culture that ensures that these uh, pay packages continue to rise year after year, whether times are good or whether they are bad. And, and yet in some cases, you kind of want your, I mean, clearly there's a market out there for these CEOs. I, I guess this is what you're getting at. I mean, it's it, it feels a bit like athletics, right? People pay premium dollar for the best talent out there if they want their team to win. Uh, but as you point out, it might be a little more, it might be a little less uh, mer- of a meritocracy than that, perhaps. What's interesting is this is absolutely what they're selling. They're selling yeah. the hockey draft, right? Like all the CEOs go to the hockey draft and all the companies have got to pay a lot to get their CEO. Otherwise, their company tanks. 
Yeah. What's interesting is that that's the wrong analogy in Canada. In Canada, the right analogy is the company man. On average, CEOs have been with their company for 18 years. Uh, 75% of CEOs in Canada uh, on a top 100 list were hired up through the ranks. They aren't poached from outside. And this shouldn't be that surprising. Like, who do you want heading the company? Somebody who knows the company, somebody who knows the sector. You don't want some random person who doesn't know anything about what you do. Uh, you know, one company on the list mines uranium in Kazakhstan. Another company on the list on the list runs grocery stores. You want to swap those CEOs because one did better? No, of course not. That would be terrible for both companies. And so we've been sold this analogy that, that there's a competition, when in fact, there isn't actually a competition. It's just people, company men being hired up the ranks, spent their careers at a company and finally end up at the head, which means you don't require these extreme pay packages to get them in that position. Yeah, you don't need. I guess you don't need to go from 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 well paid. Let's 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 call it what it is. More most people end up in the CEO's suite tend to have be uh, upper management for quite some time. But to go from several hundred thousand to several million uh, does yeah. seem extreme. And and you and you when you talk about the businessman, you you don't you're not using that term by mistake either, right? No, that's right. Uh, it's uh, it's an old boys club. It's always been an old boys club. There's only four women on the list. There's actually more men. There's actually the same number of men named Mark on the list as women. Women actually get paid 63 cents for every dollar a mark gets paid. It's not a diverse group. Uh, it doesn't reflect the Canadian labor force, which is, you know, half women now, even though women do get paid less than men in general. There's no change this year. It's not unusual. We usually see, you know, three to four women on the list. That that didn't change this year. Uh, there's no indication that it will change, despite a fair amount of corporate concern about gender diversity. That is not what's happening at the top of these companies. David McDonald is a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He is author of a report out today called Canada's New Gilded Age. The title suggests it all. It is about CEO pay. The average CEO, of course, earned what the average Canadian earns. Uh, today alone, they still have 364 days worth of earning to go. Uh, and the average CEO, Canadian CEO, was paid about 14.9. The highest paid CEO, is, uh, better yet, uh, earned about $14.9 million in 2022. That's up from 14.3 in 2021. A big jump as company profits rose a lot. So w- what do you do about this? Because they'll always say, I mean, you, you always hear the argument, right? Like this is this is the private sector. We need uh, strong people at the top. We need to make sure that we have the right people at the top to inspire investor confidence and so on and so forth. And uh, you really don't want the government getting too involved in all this. And if you tax them too much, they'll simply take off on you, right? I mean, that's always been the argument uh, against sort of cracking down on on this growing uh, wage inequity. I mean, it's interesting is if CEOs wanted to move just because of tax rates, they could do that right now. They could go to Callaway. Uh, Nunavut has a 10-point lower tax rate than you'd find in Ontario or Quebec. Why aren't all these CEOs in Iqaluit? Because they don't want to live in Iqaluit, right? I mean, there are other things in life than tax rates. And so uh, this is very much a spurious argument, although one that's used often, that uh, you know we can't see higher tax rates because they'll move to someplace like uh, the far north, uh, even though they could do that right now and they don't. What's interesting is that uh, top marginal tax rates in Canada used to be much higher uh, in the post-war years, uh, you know, the golden period after the after the war. Top tax rates were 70, 80 percent federal, provincial. Um, they're now about 55 in the big provinces, Ontario, Quebec. And so they're actually a fair amount lower than they than they were historically. Um, I mean, the other thing, too, to look at is uh, these are pretty rich people. They don't need additional tax breaks and they get them anyway. I mean, you know, they the. These big pay packages are tax deductible from the corporation's perspective. If they make capital gains on the stocks that they're being awarded, this is one of the important ways that CEOs are paid is, is uh, through stocks. 
they pay 50% of the tax, a half off coupon on their taxes for that type of income. Stock options, they can make $200,000 in stock options and they get a 50% off coupon on that. 200,000 just regular pay would be considered pretty good for most Canadians uh, and they get a half off coupon on that. So why don't we, you know, why are we giving these tax breaks to the richest Canadians that only they can use? Uh, let's let's cancel them and bring in some money and put that money to better use some other way, trying to help Canadians, uh, you know, afford higher food and gas prices, for instance. And if you, as you found out this year, I mean, that uh, the benefit that that brings has only accelerated, right? I mean, if it, the more they make, the more those benefits bring in. Yeah. And the more that we lose in tax dollars because we provide these extreme benefits, you know, it is worth pointing out that there has been movement on this file. And so the stock option deduction, for instance, was capped starting in July 2021. Um, We did see a slight decrease in the in the proportion of pay that's paid using stock options this year. Potentially is a bit of a reaction to that. It doesn't doesn't have the same kind of sweetheart tax deal that it had prior to 2021. And so, you know, this example of the way that these very specialized very expensive but very important tax breaks for CEOs have been closed or limited in this case and could be further limited in the future. Yeah, I, I, Rogers is in there, of course. Uh, one of the one of those ones that people probably won't be won't be surprised to see, but might be mightn't be too happy to see that their CEO has made thirty two million dollars last year. What would you like people to? I mean, we have this conversation each and every year. It's accelerating. Uh, what would you like people to walk away with this one with, or at least what would you like twenty twenty four to look like on this front? Yeah, I mean, it'd be great to see actual movement on the policy front. I'm not sure if we're likely to see that federally in 2024. Some of these things could actually be done provincially as well, talking about new new top marginal brackets. Those are things you could could be done provincially. Uh, you know, the definition of income in terms of capital gains or stock options, you'd, you'd actually have to do that federally, except in Quebec where you, you could do it provincially. I think it's worthwhile for Canadians to understand you know, that that there is absolutely some truth in the fact that if the economy does well, they don't necessarily do well. If the economy does well, their bosses do well, uh, their CEO does well. And this is corrosive, I think. Um, you know, we do want our economy to do well. We want the companies we work for to do well. And we want to share in some of that benefit. And uh, less and less we are sharing. And so I think that's part of the story is that we are overvaluing CEOs and we're undervaluing regular workers. We should be better valuing regular workers in a general sense, but also in the sense that uh, they get higher pay. Inflation has been very rough on average workers uh, in terms of eroding their ability to to buy the same basket of goods and services they that they could in 2020. Uh, they are clawing their way back in 2023. We saw real real hourly wage gains, but they're still clawing their way back. Hopefully they will continue to do so. You know, Hopefully there isn't a recession in 2024, so the pressure continues to be on. Um, but there's some justification for that, that they have been left behind prior to inflation, but inflation has, has sort of made things worse. Yeah, I guess if, if you look back at all the years you've been doing this, the one thing you're trying to avoid in any economy is is the notion that the fix is in, right? And and that's where uh, and, and that's where people start to get really upset about stuff, when when they start to feel like, as you pointed out, uh, that maybe they're not benefiting when the economy, that they're paying for it when the economy is bad and not benefiting when it's good. Yeah, that the fix is in and there's nothing they can do about it too, right? I mean, sometimes people say, oh, you boycott a company and so on. That just doesn't, in my mind, seem to, I mean, because it's so widespread. I mean, this is just the way it works in corporate Canada and for a lot of countries. I mean, the same way it works in the U.S. too. Other countries say like Japan, you just don't see these kinds of pay extremes, but um, it's not. So, you know, historically speaking, you don't either in Canada. But, you know, I don't want this to be disempowering for folks to say like, oh, yeah, bosses always win when the economy does well. When there's inflation, bosses always win. 
They do, uh, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? I mean, there, there, there are other ways, there are choices we could make to put this money to better use and really constrain this, this income inequality that we've seen growing pretty consistently over the past 30 years. Well, David, we made this an annual tradition. Now, I think this is the second year in a row. You're the first person I've spoken to in a new year. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. We heard the term saudade in there, and it's it's an interesting word because there, apparently there is no English translation. There's no direct translation uh, of saudade. Before we get there, I just want to thank Sizzlin' Steve in North Van, who just sent me a picture of his bluebells, which have been, which are um, out, <laughs> out on January the second, to give you an idea of how warm it's been uh, out here. I was away for a while. I was actually in Portugal. Um, I'd never been, oddly enough, I'd never been to Portugal. So that's where we went for our tenth wedding anniversary, and it was great. Um, it was really nice. And if you spend time in other parts of the world, one of the most interesting things to find out is just different ways of approaching life, right? And it takes a little while to figure out exactly what those are. And even they, again, they even use different words to explain those concepts. So for example, one of the very cool words that I learned growing up was a French word called, it's a verb called flâner, uh, which means basically to wander. So it's Parisian. And it just means to wander the streets of Paris in kind of a leisurely way with nowhere to go. It's, it's, to flaner, right? You just sort of wander aimlessly and admire the city because, of course, Paris is a pretty beautiful space. Um, I'm not going to, I'm going to try to pronounce this right, but there's an Inuit word called Ixwarpak. Ixwarpak. And I read that this describes the feeling of anticipation when you're expecting someone. So it refers to that impatient excitement that makes you constantly check to see if they're coming. What a great word. What a cool word. There are lots of them, right? There are many, many words in different languages that sort of describe very cool things. And one of them that I came across over the holidays is a word called saudad. Again, no direct English translation, but it comes from the Latin for solitary. Uh, so you get the starting point. And at its core, it's, and there are many different ways of describing this, it depends who you ask. It is a sense of intense longing. It's about nostalgia, missing, being away from something and yearning to get back, years at sea, not knowing when you're going to go back, for instance. Um, and, and I mean, again, there are many different perspectives on precisely what it means. It's more of a, as much of an idea, a feeling as it is a word. It's also very intertwined with Portuguese culture and language, not just in Portugal, but around the world in Portuguese-speaking areas from Angola to Brazil, Mozambique to Macau. And I thought, let's find out more about where this word comes from, what it means, and how it's been sort of come to kind of, especially if you're a tourist, it's come to sort of symbolize something bigger about, about Portugal itself. MJ uh, Maciel George is an associate professor of Portuguese studies at York's University in the Department of, uh, of Linguistics or Department of Languages, Literature and Linguistics and the Associate Dean of Global and Community Engagement at York as well. MJ, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I was feeling a little saudade for my time away, as one does uh, on January the second. So I thought, what a good, what a good way to talk about words that we encounter in different cultures that mean something that that uh, that always makes traveling that much more interesting when you come across a term or 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 a sentiment that that might that they say does not exist in your language. Which, of course, this is one of one of many. Tell me a bit about the whole notion of saudade. I know it, I know it can be a bit overblown, uh, being Irish Catholic. I, you know, obviously Ireland has all its own stereotypes, uh, but just the idea. Where where does Saudade come from and why is it untranslatable, do you think? Well, Saudade, as experts say, is as, war, as, as old as Portugal is as a nation. 
And it first appears in writing when a king is mourning for his son. And he says, I saw that dish, which is also used in the plural. Um, so we know already that there is an element that associates soldado with mourning, right? So there's a bit of a loss, but it can be many things. Uh, it can be a yearning. It can be nostalgia. It can be missing or longing for someone or something always connected with the past. And for me, that's where the problem lies with the saudade. Some even say it can be a bittersweet feeling. So it's a, it's a feeling that is welcomed, that it's painful, but you want to feel it. You, so it, it, there's a little bit of a cult to this emotion. You want to feel it. There's a sweetness about it. You welcome it, you nurture it, then you perpetuate it. And it exists in its singular form, soldad, and in its plural form, soldad. So a, a form of longing, right? It's interesting that you pointed out that way that it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? That you sort of that the idea of being of of of, be, of having sort of a bittersweet pain can can become addictive in some ways, or or it could start to paint um, part of your culture in a way that might might again be self-perpetuating. Exactly, and there's also it's also associated with lost love. So it could be the lingering effects of a love that you've never been able to move from. Uh, some even say that it is a presence in an absence. So the definition, much like the word, can also be very abstract. And there's many ways to go about it. And one thing is for sure, the Portuguese don't actually seem to agree that there is one sole definition. And you can import, you know, you can encounter Portuguese that will tell you, oh, no, so that means this. And then, you know, there's another one that will say, so that means that. So it can be a long discussion over some port wine, preferably, over what so that is are. When did it become associated? Because obviously, I, I you know, I, I heard the term. You don't actually hear it that often in Portugal, unless you ask someone about it, right? Because obviously, they'll 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 entertain the tourists with uh, with talk of this. Because again, it's always pointed out that there is no proper English translation uh, to it. But when did it become associated with this idea of exploration and the sea and being away for long periods of time? Well, because Portugal has a long history of maritime exploration. It was once a uh, world. Uh, colonial power, the first great colonial power, as the Portuguese still like to say. And the problem with Soldado is that it continues to be linked to a glorious past. Mm. Because it has the linkage to the past, it can be very dangerous. So in some ways, it is the opposite of an anti-colonial agenda. Because Soldado seems to be at its strongest when Portugal goes through uh, uh, financial difficulties, um, lack of identity. We see, for instance, the merging of the philosophical movement called Sauduzismo at the beginning of the 20th century. And why at the beginning of the 20th century? Well, it is not a coincidence that Portugal had lost Brazil. Brazil becomes an independent nation. So as I tell my students, Portugal has lost its cash cow uh, it doesn't have an identity because it has also been recently humiliated by the British. It has been sort of reduced to its size, although it still had its African colonies. 
there was no concrete plan to develop that because the investment had to be in Brazil. And before that, the investment had to be in the sea route to India. So it, it seems to come up at these moments where uh, national identity needs a little bit of a boost, you know. Um, and in more recent times, it's also associated with diasporic communities. Right. So it, it's a political, I often say that it's a political tool, it's a political strategy rather than a sentimental strategy. Because, is, yeah. main, you know, mainstream Portuguese, they're all not, you know, all melancholic, these sad people on the streets dying of so badly. So it, it's more political driven than, than what people like to think it is. And it's also associated with tourism, with literary tourism and with the slow moving tourism uh, that promotes this Portuguese exceptionalism. Is it? Uh, is it possible to consider that although the word is not translatable, that other cultures don't have these feelings? I'm a skeptic. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I, it reminded me a lot of, of sort of the way that, that within Ireland, it's talked about as well, that sort of feeling, another great diaspora community, right, that talks about the homeland and, and sort of the, the, the there, there is a certain melancholy to it all, right? Part of it uh, fueled by different forms of alcohol as well, if I, I need to point out. How different is Saudade in Brazil? Because I know it exists in Brazil as well. And, and given, as you were just explaining, the different histories of the, of, of, of the two areas and the differences between the peoples that live in them, uh, I gather that Saudade is also a concept that exists within Brazil. It must be a bit different than it is in Portugal. Well, some will argue that Brazilians inherited these, this poetic lyricism from the Portuguese. Mm -hmm. um, I've actually had very interesting conversations with colleagues in Brazil that affirm that there's, uh, it's also Brazilian exceptionalism inherited from the Portuguese, which to me it sort of smacks in the face of an anti-colonial agenda that everybody is trying to engage. Um, but it, it, it does, it has to do with especially in the last few decades with this um the system of uh we call it in portuguese irmandad or brotherhood that some of these portuguese speaking nations have been trying to establish to create not a sense of cultural diversity but sometimes sameness so you know brazilians are equally invested that if, you know, their brothers, which, and I'm saying brothers in invisible quotation marks, in the ex-African colonies, if there's a deal to be made, they would rather choose a country that has sort of a shared history. And, and Portugal hasn't been innocent on this, on promoting this idea of Portuguese exceptionalism in an effort to try to hide or dismiss um, all the wrongs that were committed in the name of the empire. Right. Whereas, you know, with the Francophonie, for instance, is very well established, or the Commonwealth, for instance, these are all quite similar organizations. You're right. I mean, Portuguese, in a sense, has always been that language that one thinks of afterwards, after sort of the dominance of Spanish around the world, South America as well, uh, and, and the Francophonie and the Commonwealth. Uh, so it, I, I guess it would make some sense. One thing I found really interesting in Portugal is just how diverse Portugal, I mean, how many Brazilians there are in Portugal now, which is sort of 
created a, a kind of a different vibe within the country itself, much more so than, I mean, I suppose it's common all, all, all around the world right now, but there's definitely that reverse influence now that you see in a place like Lisbon with, with, the, with the influx of Portuguese-speaking people from around the world. Yes, of course. And it, it, it's also, um, it, it also, uh, the way Portugal is becoming such a diverse country uh, it's also in Portugal's best interest to actually promote Portuguese exceptionalism. Um, they're also very invested in an elite type of, of tourists. So, yeah, all tourists have to hear Fado and they have to get to know what Soldad is all about. Uh, because we know that in today's sort of uh, literary tourism, tourists are interested not in products, but in experiences. So, so that is a very clever marketing exportation of this experience of Portuguese supposed um, exceptionalism. Um, and of course, with Brazilians. So not all Brazilians are the same. So we have a lot of Brazilians who have come to Portugal to seek in a better life. They choose Portugal because there is a common language. Uh, there are many cases where, you know, Brazilians... Common Brazilians are um, um, are um, uh, marginalized and discriminated upon, um, but there's also very wealthy Brazilians who have chosen to move to Portugal for security reason. Um, I often joke with some friends that you know they are becoming the new colonizers of Portugal, so it's like the situation in reverse. But you know what I think at the end was exceptional about Soldado is perhaps that the Portuguese insist that it's unique. MG Maciel George is with us this half hour. She's an assistant professor of Portuguese studies at York University. We've been talking about the concept of saudade, which is a Portuguese term, uh, which you'll hear if you go. Uh, about, and it, it really it, it comes from the Latin term solitude. It, it's about longing and a bittersweet longing about something that you, something good that you had, by the way. It's not necessarily a negative emotion. It's sort of a bittersweet emotion, as we've been pointing out. It's also a very clever marketing campaign about uh, allowing you to sort of uh, feel, experience Portugal in a way that can be uh, that can make you feel like you're sort of part of not just you're not just there physically you're there sort of spiritually and soulfully as well if I can put it that way. Um, MJ, something perhaps Canadians don't know is that uh, Canada has a, a significant Portuguese community, especially uh, in Toronto and Montreal, much m- much from the same place and also a place that that knows Soldad quite well as well, uh, which is the Azores. Yes, and so that had, has had traditionally its strongest linkage with diasporic communities. And this also relates to, um, you know, we often talk about uh, volunteer immigration. And of course, Azorians um, fled the Azores in mass, and their immigration can be considered voluntary immigration. But can we actually say that about an immigration that is actually driven by systemic poverty and lack of resources and no ability to dream for their children? So um, Azorians and all Portuguese uh, left a piece of themselves home because it wasn't necessarily um, uh, an immigration fueled by, you know, personal uh, or professional desires. It was to flee, to flee poverty to flee misery. So it's often been used in that context. Um, and now it it's a living thing. Uh, it's so that I like to, you know, I've written another essay where I call it the great trickster. 
because it keeps us hooked. It keeps us hooked to an illusionary past, uh, to our homeland. It is used often by politicians when they come over and they, they speak to us about us continue to be Portuguese. Um, and the problem with that is that it doesn't, it keeps us static either in the 1950s or the 1960s or whatever that temporal framework from where we came, it keeps us there and it doesn't allow us to modernize, to integrate, to move forward. So, so that as alluring of a word as it can be, it's also quite dangerous in terms of maybe getting, establishing further ghettoizing. Um, it's often said that migrant communities, they live in their own ghettos. They're all segregated and separated. They don't mingle. So it sort of keeps us there. And the main problem with Soldad, especially because it, it's always linked to something that we've had that we no longer have, is that often that is that glorious world empire. Right. The, yes, so, the glorious past. So, so, right. so, yeah. So, so that is actually against democracy, against modernity. Interesting, and, and, and yet there must be a way of extricating the good of Sodad from the bad of it. There, there must be because because it is in some ways such a it it is a beautiful word, right? It just is. Uh, there must be ways of taking the good of it and and trying to maybe expunge some of the bad of it, as so many cultures try to do when when they leave their homelands over generations. Oh yeah, I think so. I like to think that the way that so that is also the great trickster is that it only awakens our short-term memory. It makes us forget about the long, long-term memory. And I think we need in a way to live it in harmony with it is to just basically accept that, yeah, this is a really cool, interesting word that we see on storefronts, that we see everywhere. You know, people have have shirts with soldad on it, right? And they feel really proud about these things. But it's not. It doesn't make us exceptional. It makes us as exceptional as anyone else. So I think we need to be mindful of the implications of it so we can have a sort of a more uh, friendly report with it, I, w- I would say. Yeah, I, I think everyone recognizes the sentiment. To, I guess putting a word to it is is the interesting part. MJ, thank you so much. You're very welcome.